Hello, and welcome to Offer Next, a podcast about women and the law. I'm your host, Jennifer L. Brinkley, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies at the University of West Florida. Offer Next is derived from a quote from the abolitionist Sarah Grimke. She was born in 1792 and worked to end slavery and fought for women's rights. Her famous quote, which inspired this podcast, was, I ask no favors for my sex. I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they will take their feet from off our necks. My guest today is Marie Emily George, an assistant professor of law at Wake Forest University, where she teaches courses on civil procedure and family law. Prior to joining the Wake faculty, she was the Berger Howe Fellow in Legal History at Harvard Law School and an associate in law at Columbia Law School. She received her PhD in history with distinction from Yale University, her JD from Columbia Law School, and a master's in women's studies from the University of Oxford. In 2018 and 2019, she received a Duke Minier Award, which is conferred on authors of the country's most influential sexual orientation and gender identity scholarship. Her work has been published in the Northwestern Law Review, Wisconsin Law Review, Alabama Law Review, Yale Law and Policy Review, Harvard Civil Rights, Civil Liberties Law Review, and Law and History Review, among others. She is currently working on a book manuscript based on her doctoral dissertation entitled Attaining Equality, How American Law Came to Protect Gays and Lesbians. Today, we are discussing her recent article, Expanding LGBT, forthcoming in the Florida Law Review. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So when is this article coming out? Uh, In March of next year. Awesome. Okay, great. Well, I enjoyed it so much. Um, It was informative. It was fascinating to me that the historical perspective that you spent so much time on, I'm definitely going to assign it to my students. Um, I think it's a I think it's fascinating. I mean, the whole time I kept reading, I was like, this is amazing. There was so much in there that I just, I did not know. Um, And so I just thought it was really, really good. Um, But so let's start talking about it. Your paper discusses the term LGBT and variations of the term as it has changed to become um, more inclusive over the years. So um, your paper mentions LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTQIA. And then LGBTQIAPK. Um, so, what are some of the what are the differences between these terms? I should say that this started as the first the gay rights movement, and then the gay and lesbian rights movement, and then the and there are differences as to what acronyms people use now. Um, okay. Many national legal organizations are LGBT. Some are LGBTQ. So Q stands for queer. Uh, which is anyone who's not heterosexual or cisgender. Um, And then uh, other groups use LGBTQIA, I being intersex, uh, which is individuals with variations in their physical sex characteristics. Um, So uh, characteristics that that would identify them as male or female. Um, And A is asexual, who are individuals who don't experience sexual attraction. Um, There are more expansive versions, which include pangender and kink. Uh, Some will say LGBTQ plus to identify the rest, and some may just choose queer as an overarching term. Um, And the reason I ended up 
studying this issue is I was um, running a clinic, uh, co co leading a clinic at Columbia on sexuality and gender law, and my students were working on a project where. Uh, their institutional partner had asked for research on LGBT rights, and they started researching LGBTQIA because they assumed that when the group said LGBT, they wanted everything. And so it struck me at how um, much people's ideas of what came under this umbrella really differed and what this language really was meant to signify. Yeah, you mentioned a quote in your article about um, social movements and how they redefine themselves due to the quote says cultural and political shifts that change the terrain on which they battle their opponents. And you go into a history of how social movements um, over time have really shifted and splintered. And I really enjoyed this portion of the article. Why is it so important to understand this intersection between movement expansion and identity? In part because we talk about social movements, and this is this is a problem um, throughout the scholarship. We talk about social movements when really there are it's, there's not a single social movement. There are multiple social movements, and they are constantly changing. Sometimes they are fracturing. Sometimes they are expanding. Uh, sometimes they are changing their priorities, uh, but representing the same people. While other times they're just bringing new people into the fold or uh, really kicking people out. And so what brings social movements together is both a shared purpose or individuals within social movements together is a shared purpose and a shared sense of identity. So as people redefine themselves and what their identity means, what a social movement is and what it stands for changes as well. Um, But the flip side is also true Um, because social movement organizations are responding to uh, needs of uh, their constituents as the context changes, uh, so does who it is that they can actually effectively represent. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, if you are superficially thinking about history, it can be easy to think about past social movements where every member of the group, you know, shares the same ideology, shares the same priorities. But your paper really does a a great job of pointing out that this would be a mistaken assumption that oftentimes as new members come in or as ideas change, um, there really is a fluidity into what the agenda for that national organization should be, right? Yes. And I should note that I'm writing about national organizations in large part as opposed to uh, a social movement as a whole, because there is so much variation. And what national rights groups uh, are willing to take on is different than what regional groups will take on as opposed to local groups, as opposed to individual individuals who identify as members of the LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTQIA community. Um, so it's, it's hard to write about because there are so many different levels um, and differences within the broader social movement. Yeah, as I was reading your paper, that was what I was thinking about is that this must be a really difficult, well, I don't know if difficult is the right word in terms of uh, what I'm trying to say, but must be um, challenging area of scholarship because of how these organizations change and bend and based on geography. And um, like you said, uh, you know, if, if it's on the national stage, if it's on the local stage, so that must pose some interesting challenges to your work. Yeah, one of the things I really struggled with was talking about 
I organized the paper um, first by talking about social movements and how strategy and identity uh, form important pillars of social movement organization and advocacy. And then I went into uh, queer, intersex, and asexual, defining the categories and talking about the ways in which uh, they have identity and uh, strategy-based connections and tensions with national LGBT rights organizations' uh, agendas. But I really struggled in defining queer, uh, intersex, and asexual because there is so much variation within those identity categories. And so um, it's I, I found it important to cabin what I was saying to talk to make sure that I was accurate as to subgroups within those and to be clear that I couldn't actually represent everybody within those categories. Right. Your your article discusses how there was um, a dispute in the community about initially coming up with the term LGBT and that uh, steps forward and gay and lesbian acceptance had come really at this cost of being able to conform to middle-class norms. And so can we talk a little bit about how the LGBT movement came to be in the late 1990s and early 2000s um, just with, with uh, that community? Uh, Part of that has to do with changes in how trans individuals self-identified. Um, so for a long time, uh, what the contemporary people who would today identify as trans identified in different ways. Um, they might've identified as transsexual, as transvestite. Um, and because of barriers to, uh, medical procedures, people really had to conform to a specific narrative to have access to medical interventions that they wanted. And for that reason, it really, that put a damper on the variations that people could express. Not so much that they didn't feel that they variated from this uh, medical norm, but that there was a limit to what they could say. uh, Otherwise they would be excluded from having accessing the medical treatments that they wanted. And then um, a lot of gender identity clinics closed And this left a vacuum in which uh, trans individuals began talking to each other and really challenging this medical model and this assumption that um, that the physicians should serve as gatekeepers as opposed to um, medicine should be providing the services that trans individuals wanted, even if it didn't fit a particular narrative. Um, and so from there, there's more organizing among trans individuals. There is a broader sense of who the trans community is. And uh, there's more activism on the part of and on behalf of trans individuals. And one of the things that happened was that trans individuals started lobbying gay and lesbian rights groups to be included within their mission statements and to be represented as part of a broader LGBT community. Um, and the argument that really won the day was trans individuals are discriminated against because they violate gender norms. And that's the same for gays and lesbians. A lot of gays and lesbians aren't discriminated against because of the gender of their sexual partner. It's because uh, men are effeminate or women are too masculine and therefore they're discriminated against because they violate expectations about how men or women should be. And for that reason, everyone was fighting a common enemy. And that made sense to bring everyone together But um, the legal strategy was really about 
arguing that members of the LGBT community were the same as everybody else, except for insignificant reasons. And so gender difference really got pushed out of arguments about legal rights change. And that um, inured to the benefit of gender conforming gays and lesbians, but not so much gender non-conforming gays and lesbians or bisexuals. And it really excluded trans individuals from the conversation. And now it seems that LGBT LGBT organizations are again faced with um, this shift in terms of inclusion. So you mentioned binary issues, intersexuality, and asexuality in the article. And there seems to be a tension between the goals and priorities of, um, of the organizations now in terms of who do they include and um, and why? Can you discuss what it means to be non-binary and how that uh, can be treated as an outside group by some organizations? Yes. Before I do that, I just want to note that there are tensions about representations that um, extend beyond these issues and that have re- that really plague all social movements. Namely, how much do you do you represent? Um, people's intersectional identities. So if you focus on sexual orientation, if you focus on gender identity, um, the the model for that tends to be white upper middle class individuals who happen to have a different sexual orientation or gender identity. And there's been a lot of discussion and tension over the extent to which organizations don't represent racial minorities um, or people from more impoverished circumstances. So this is one type of representational dilemma, um, it's just added to the list of um, really fraught issues that lawyers have to consider when deciding priorities and uh, laying out strategies. But on non-binary, non-binary individuals are individuals who don't conform to um, expectations of male or female. They may be gender neutral is in neither male or female, uh, may identify as male sometimes and not others, uh, or may combine elements of both male and female. Um, so it's non-binary is um, the sense that the binary gender does not meet their personal identities. Um, and there are people who uh, are more or less uh non-binary. So uh, non-binary self is not a binary character uh, category. And so you, you go also into, I was, I was really interested in the, in the next part of your article when you talk about intersexuality. Um, And so you indicate that there, uh, there's some estimates that intersexuality in society maybe as high as 1.7%. Um, and what I found really interesting was this, because I think you lay it out really well, is this, uh, you go into the discussion about um, how there is de- a debate around intersex rights um, dealing with sex assignment surgeries and um, how these surgical responses are based on societal expectations in order to alleviate the stigma by normalizing uh, the genitalia. But then you also talk about in your article about how um, uh, there's this tension with, in the medical field, I guess, um, 
um, but also I would imagine in the in the organizations as well about how the intersex agenda wants to limit physical uh, I'm sorry physician interventions in terms of these sex assignment surgeries, while transgender advocates agendas may want to increase access to medical treatments because often um, surgeries that that they are wanting to have are not covered by insurance. Um, and so I found that a really fascinating tension between, um, between those two groups. How does a national organization representing both groups reconcile these desires? I think it's not too difficult to distinguish between the types of surgeries that we're talking about. Um, if anything, Um, One of the reasons that intersex surgeries are so contentious is that it is parents providing the consent for an infant um, who cannot consent for themselves. And so the argument of many intersex rights advocates is that it's not that the surgery itself um, shouldn't ever be done. It's that you need to ask the consent of the person uh, on whom the surgery is being performed. And so doctor should wait until an intersex person is old enough to understand the consequences and therefore have a say in whether or not a surgery happens. For uh, trans rights advocates who want more access to surgery, um, these are these are adults who can consent, who understand the implications and therefore um, want to be able to access the things that they need without um, doctors per, uh, in, and insurance companies imposing limitations. Um, that are not health-based. Um, but where things really create a more of a strategic ideological tension is that one of the reasons that intersex rights advocates say you can wait is because individuals' gender identity will form regardless of what their physical body looks like. There's no need to have the congruence um, or there's no need to require, there's no need to have a body conform to expected gender identity for a person to develop their gender identity. Those two things are not uh, integrally related. Whereas for trans rights advocates, um, they are really important. It is really important for people's physicality to be able to match their gender identity. And so the tension is, um, is a bit more nuanced. And for that reason, um, maybe it's not the worst strategic tension that exists um, because uh, you can make arguments about it without getting into the fundamental differences about what it means for gender identity. Interesting. Uh, your paper also discusses marriage equality and how it has been successful for LGBT advocates, um, but not all members of the community. Could you discuss a little bit about how that's so? There are a couple of reasons why marriage has been contentious. While the marriage equality movement was happening, quite a few people criticized it for being an issue that really concerned uh, wealthier individuals um, because marriage is um, it is not universal and uh, individuals who have uh, more income, more education, uh, are the ones who are likelier to get married. And so for many people, marriage was really the wrong goal. Instead, it should have been expanding the categories of families that the state supports. And for 
uh, aces uh, who may be engaged in romantic relationships um, but don't experience sexual attraction, uh, they are more likely to be single and therefore less likely to benefit from marriage equality. When that's added to the effect that marriage equality has had on functional parenthood recognition, so the recognition of parents who are non-marital parents, but who are who are meant to be a child's parents and who serve as a child's parents, um, the erosion of functional parenthood doctrines in the wake of marriage equality has also served to harm uh, many people within the LGBT community. So I should say that these functional parenthood doctrines, so recognizing intended parents um, or plans to have three parents, three legal parents from the outset. Um, these were all doctrines that rights advocates promoted when there wasn't marriage equality as a stopgap measure so as to protect uh, gay and lesbian and trans parents who um, couldn't access the parenthood doctrines that marriage provided. Um, but since these were sort of placeholders, now that there is marriage equality, some courts are now saying, well, you know, we don't need these doctrines anymore. We don't need to recognize functional parents. Uh, parents should get married. And so that has limited people's options um, I, I, in a way that I don't think anybody really intended. Um, but that's that's been the effect. Well, I really enjoyed your paper. I would say it's been one of my favorites that I've read this this year because it's so thorough and so fascinating with the history. I just felt really um, informed after I, I read it. So um, you. That, is, that is remarkably kind. Well, it, it's, it's, it's excellent. So um, now, but let's talk a little bit about before we go, you are currently working on a book based on your doctoral dissertation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, the book asks the question, how did we get from the criminalization of gay life in 1960s? So in as a in the 19, in 1960, every state had a provision, um, a criminal provision that made same sex um, consensual sodomy illegal. So we went from the criminalization of gay life in 1960s to marriage equality in 2015. That's 55 years. How did we get from one to the other so quickly? Um, the fact that that law transformed uh, to that extent is remarkable, but the speed is also something that really distinguishes the gay and lesbian rights movement. Um, so it looks at uh, changes at the state and local level and how that fostered a new normative legal commitment about uh, what it meant to be uh, gay or lesbian as well as uh, how we should understand gay and lesbian rights and the state's obligations to it. That is so interesting. I, I teach a women in the law course. And, and one of the things that I want my students to understand really is, is, <laughs> is how slowly um, women's rights changed over the years, you know, starting from uh, when the Equal Protection Clause was passed and the Reconstruction Amendments and all the way into the 1970s. Um, and, and so, you know, I really hit home with them that how 
um, real change happens gradually, or at least in this area it has. But then you point out in, in your area of scholarship, it has really happened so quickly. It's one of the things that is possibly most remarkable. Um, And one of the things that I really hope people get from the book is just how much of it happened um, through small measures at the state and local level, as opposed to landmark federal legislation, as well as how many people who were not lawyers were involved in this um, and how change came from many different segments of society and really transformed American law. Oh, that's great. Do you have an uh, an idea of when it will be completed? <laughs> uh, <laughs> pro- probably three years from now. Okay. Okay. It well, in three years, I will contact you. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, it sounds so fascinating, and and I really look forward to to uh, reading it um, in three years. So. Um, but really, this area, I think, is so interesting, and I appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and educate me and um, any listeners that are out there about this area. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you as well for listening to Off Our Next.